there, what is going on? Welcome to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 245, and I have not been at the helm of the ship now for a couple of weeks, so took a couple of weeks off. Not that that was fully the plan. The first week I took off, I was in California with my wife, had a great vacation, but the thing that really just capstones an epic vacation is you get COVID on your vacation as you're traveling home, and that's exactly what happened with Ellen and I. So she started getting sick early on last week, then it was followed by me getting sick, and by the end of it, everybody in our home, except for my mother-in-law, all were dealing with COVID. And so uh, everybody was kind of hunkered together, uh, chilling and having the chills. Why not? Uh, And and everything else. I'm still kind of testing positive today. Everybody else has finally orbited out into the negative space. But hey, I'm keeping it alive for a little while longer around the house. And so uh, I missed Sunday because of it. I'm still waiting around at the house till they will release me into the wild again. But in the meantime, I am communicating via purely technology and hence the Everyday Missionary Podcast. So We're getting back at it, and oh, there are so many different things we can talk about in the podcast today, so much so that I'm not even sure quite where to start. Now, one of the things I've tried to be committed to is keeping in tune with current events uh, as far as what's going on in politics or news or media or life, society, culture, you name it. And man, there was a lot of stuff in the last 10 days or so that we could talk about. And I'm going to pile all of this together. But as I pile it together, I want to start kind of from the space of reminding once again what I believe our objective is here on The Everyday Missionary. Our objective is not to try to figure out what political side we choose. It's not trying to figure out what social agenda we want to engineer or advance Rather, we're trying to figure out how we can make the gospel real, alive, active, and powerful in the context of the world that we live in, a world that is pulled by all sorts of different idolatrous directions, some of which are the idols of the left, some of which are the idols of the right, and our job is to not get duped into following idols, but rather we want to follow Jesus, and by that we want to do things his way, with his tone, the ethos he brings to the world, and we want to do that as well, which means for the get-go, if the whole mission of Jesus was he was coming into a world filled with sinners, and in that he made them his friends, and he spent time with them, and they felt safe with him, and then from that they eventually followed him, we need to be those very people as well, right? So we cannot look at certain segments of our sinful world and decide they're more sinful than other segments of our sinful world, but rather we're supposed to look at all of this and say, hey, my enemy is not that person over there or that person over there. It's not the person on the left. It's not the person on the right. Uh, Everybody is a potential brother or sister in the kingdom of Christ, and I want to relate to them in that way. And the way to do that is creating space where people feel valued, they feel welcome, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel befriended more than they feel threatened or judged or marginalized or we do things or back things that make them kind of cower away from Christ in fear, not of purely sin issues, but really in a lot of ways, maybe the political motivators that may appear to be behind some of our Christian advancement. Now, I know that is a lot to take in right there, but but at the core of what I'm trying to get at is that it's very easy in the culture wars of our day as Christians to lose sight of the gospel-centered thing that we must most pursue. And sometimes we can get more pulled into 
We have these rights to defend. We have these battles to fight. We have these foes to vanquish. And we lose sight of the real kingdom gospel mission for other things that are not bad things necessarily. And they may even be very moral things. But we always want to come back to what Paul says about the law, which is 613 morality rules with some doctrinal rules tied into that. Um, He says it ends in death. So another way to put that maybe is if we as Christians work really hard to create an incredibly moral framework for the United States and everybody is incredibly moral and we get back to that perfect Norman Rockwell 1950s quintessential image of Americana, that is still estranged from God and is no closer to heaven than if it was on the other end of that moral spectrum. Because the issue at stake is not how moral or immoral a society is, it's does it know God? Is it touched by the grace of God in such a way that it enters into a relationship with God through Jesus, is then filled with the Spirit, and then from that, the fruit of the Spirit flows out in such a way that dispositions are authentically altered and changed, and people are different from the inside out as opposed to having outside rules applied from the outside and trying to conform the inside, because that never works. It didn't work with the law and the Old Testament. It doesn't work today. The only thing that works is when God's spirit implants into the life of a person and brings transformation in such a way that all that fruit of the spirit comes out. That is quite the opening introduction to the podcast today, but that is where I'm kind of going when we're talking about everything that's happened over the last 10 days or so. So kind of the working title I have for today's podcast is this idea of, it's kind of a question. And the question is, are we winning on our rights, but at the cost of losing our witness? All right, I'm going to say that again. Are we winning in the field or the area of securing our rights, but we're losing our witness in the process of that? And, and I raise this at a number of different levels. Now, I'm going to put the pieces on the, the table here really quick so you kind of know where the pieces are that are rolling in my mind, but they're not all the same thing, but they kind of pile up to something that from an outsider or a disbeliever's perspective, we want to understand why is there the level of anger or fear or, um, you know, like frantic pushback that maybe you're seeing if you're going on social media or watching the news or listening to the radio, uh, based on the things of the Supreme Court, we're seeing all of this like, whoa, wait a minute, right? So the pieces that I'm thinking about that have happened in the last 10 days, two weeks, roughly, whatever else, um, a handful of different things came from the Supreme Court. So um, we, going back, and I forget which one of these happened first. And one of these to me is very much not a Christian issue, but it kind of piles into something that gets connected more to evangelical Christianity. That's why I'm going to bring it up. So you've had four different things that have happened from the Supreme Court in the last couple of weeks. So, uh, we had the case in Maine that said, uh, basically private Christian schools could receive taxpayer funds for education uh, through the state of Maine. So it was a challenge thing to say, wait, if you're a Christian organization, you're a not-for-profit, you shouldn't be allowed to use state taxpayer dollars to fund kids to be a part of that educational system. If it's a Christian educational system, that's a nonprofit. And the Supreme Court said, no, they can't discriminate because you're a Christian organization. You should be able to get, uh, and I'm not sure the exact details of this is like a charter school concept or whatever else, but basically the organization that's a not-for-profit 
resident that doesn't pay any taxes is allowed to in fact receive state taxes to send kids for Christian education, right? And so that was a win for religious liberties and uniquely for this Christian institution in Maine. So that was the first one. Then the second one was a challenge on gun rights in New York where gun rights were more sustained in that case. And so this was another case where those who would be of a liberal persuasion were like, wow, the court just sided with that religious liberty. Now they've sided with this gun right. Um, like I said, to me, that's a that's less a Christian issue, but it's another topic where those who are disbelievers and certainly those on the left are going, wow, this is like, the Christian heyday at the Supreme Court. This is what the conservative right have been dreaming of, a court that's loaded to fulfill their agenda, whether it's legal or not. That's the way people started to think on this other side of the spectrum, right? Uh, then we add in the, obviously the, the Roe versus Wade decision as far as overturning Roe versus Wade. And then that that got all of the the fear and the anxiousness and the anger fired up, right? And if you were following social media at all, you saw that repeatedly, right? Where lots of memes of Handmaid's Tale and lots of memes of, you know, just women have zero rights and all the the, the hatred that was tied to that was definitely tied to you Christians. You're forcing this down our throat. You put a bunch of Christians on the bench. They're creating Christian nationalism in the United States. And so that decision very much galvanized a lot of disbelievers against the believing Christian American church, right? Catholic and Protestant alike just says, the the issue here is you Christians are forcing your way of life down our throat and you finally were able to secure the court and now you're getting what you want done, right? So there was that topic. And then there was the... uh, uh, Bellingham um, high school football coach that wanted to pray out on the 50-yard line or in the end zone or whatever else, and the Supreme Court backed that as well. And so in the last few weeks, you've seen two um, cases of religious liberties that have been reinforced. You've seen something that pretty much its religious organizations wanted to see rescinded for at least 40 years. Roe goes back 50 years, but for the first decade or so, it doesn't seem that especially in the Protestant realm, there was as much push against abortion for the first 10 years as much as the last 40 years since. Uh, so you you had that happen as well. Um, and then the gun thing, like I said, it's kind of in there too. But for all of it, there's a sense of like, whoa, wait, Christians are taking over. The court is siding with the Christians. And there's all this animosity, right? Here's what I'm trying to appeal to based on that. I, I'm not arguing Uh, The merits of any of the cases, I'm certainly not arguing that like, hey, the court did the wrong thing on Roe versus Wade. That's not what I'm getting at either. That's not my thing. My thing is trying to get underneath all of that to say we have literally giant segments of our population that now are looking at Christianity and Christians and saying, you're the threat. You're the threat because you're in the driver's seat. This is the difference. You're the threat because you're in the driver's seat. And you are now, by way of your faith, dictating how American life is going to go. So where persecution is, you're not in the driver's seat and you're persecuted for your faith by the powers that be. Actually, what's happening is almost an inversion. Disbelieving people are looking at Christians saying, you all are in the driver's seat. You all are persecuting us. What are you going to do next? See, that that's to me the headline of what's going on right now, right? You're in the driver's seat. The court keeps backing your way of life, your vision for the world, 
and what's next, right? And if you read Clarence Thomas's kind of um, brief on all of this, he actually does talk about, well, maybe we should reinvestigate gay marriage. Maybe we should reinvestigate certain other things that pertain to even like women's contraception and things of that nature. So he at least voiced like, hey, do we, do we put the pedal down to the floor even more? And we get more of this agenda done, bringing America back in alignment with would certainly more be more the vision that Christians would have for a society, right? So, so it's in there. It's enough there then that the people that we're called to reach out to are very afraid of us. It's not that they're poised to persecute us because they're in control and we're not. They're thinking we're gonna we're persecuting. They already feel we're persecuting them, and they think we're gonna go even further, right? That that's their fear right now. Now. To be real clear, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that's in the heart of many followers of Jesus in our culture, but we want to think about who we're trying to reach. And we want to think about the impediments that get in the way of that. We want to think about the tone that we have as we have these conversations, as we support certain causes and the, the backlash that it can have and how we can be sympathetic to that. So for example, um, on the day that Roe was decided, I reached out to a friend of mine that I know is on the other end of this discussion. And I just said, you know what? I'm thinking about you today. I know this is a rough one and just, just grace to you, you know? Um, like I wanted them to know that here is this evangelical Christian pastor that knows this day for them based on where they sit and how they think this was a brutal, um, terrifying day for them, right? And I just want to acknowledge that that day was terrifying for them. And then I saw them on social media and it was clear. There's anger, anger, there's vitriol. Then when the decision came through with the coach that was praying, their feeling was if this was a Muslim putting out their prayer mat, Christians would have opposed it. But because it's a Christian wanting to do this, then we support it. And, and so there's that feeling like there's inconsistency from Christians. They don't want real religious liberty. They just want their religious liberty. They don't want religious liberty for a Satanist. They don't want religious liberty for a Muslim or a Sikh or any other group. They just mostly want it for them. And that's the way they're feeling right now. And what I want to get across to us is to say, we need to feel that they're feeling. We need to hurt for them. Whether we agree with them or not is not the point. What I'm saying is there is authentic um, just worry for them and anger for them. And we Christians are to blame in their mind. And we're the only ones that can change that stereotype at the grassroots level, right? It's not going to happen at the national level. I don't expect that. I'm talking about us as individuals in this podcast, that we can be a catalyst to trying to, to lower the temperature, to be something different than what they anticipate, and to simply show empathy for the circumstances of the, that they're finding themselves in, where they literally feel like all these different elements of the world is kind of crumbling, and it's the Christians that are taking over. And, and part of the reason they feel this way is there's been a lot of talk of Christian nationalism in the last couple of years. There's certainly increasingly voices within Christianity that do talk about a type of nationalism and taking over and, you know, kind of instituting Christian laws as the laws of the land. Some of that is just instituting Old Testament laws as the laws of the land. And so I can appreciate their concerns. Because there have certainly been times in history where Christianity did take over. They did run the rules. They ran the laws. They ran the government. And it wasn't real fair for a lot of marginalized people, right? And so this is why they have the concerns that they do. And our job is then to come in and love on those people in their space of fear. And to show them Jesus 
in their space of anxiety and to not gloat, to not jam it in their face, to not talk about how, well, it's because they're on the wrong side of morality or because they're unrighteous or ungodly or immoral and that's the real problem. And I say that because on social media, as I was following along with things this week, um, I was watching my disbelieving friends very, very angry, just super, super angry, blaming us as Christians for everything, 100%. And that it's not just that they disagree. It's like they see it as evil, right? That we're evil. And Jesus said we're going to get persecuted. So once again, I go, hey, when it's persecution for the sake and name of Christ, totally get it. But they're not looking at this because, again, they're in the driver's seat and we're not. They're looking at this because we're in the driver's seat at this point. Like, even for the last 10 years, the Supreme Court has repeatedly backed religious liberty. So for us as Christians, if we're worried that somehow government's against us, people are against us, the culture's against us, we're winning, all right? So we need to kind of retire this, oh, the worst place to be is a white evangelical male. Like, we're winning by almost all accounts in the social structure right now, right? And so we need to be wise then with our position, leverage the privileges that we have in that position to be most kingdom-minded, most gospel-minded, not politically motivated, kingdom-motivated. There's a difference. I think you can be pro-life kingdom-motivated and you can be pro-life politically motivated and one of those really honors Jesus and the other could throw Jesus out the window to fight for that cause and it would not represent Christ very faithfully. So we want to make sure that we're not motivated on our politics because what happens so often in this is that we need an enemy in our political battles and the enemy must be a human being to be our enemy and that's that's not gospel at all. To be kingdom motivated says there is an enemy and none of them walk the planet, right? None of my enemies walk the planet. And so what I'm trying to do is two things simultaneously. I want to strive for justness and I want to love everybody around me at the same time. That's way harder than I'm just going to strive for justice. Who cares if there's dead bodies behind me in the end? Because you know, it got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. We don't want it to be like that. We have to keep intention. Our mission is to love our friends, to love our neighbors, and to love our enemies. Because that's gospel stuff. And right now, a lot of our neighbors are freaked out. They see us as enemies, and we need to work hard to be their friends. And that's why I said earlier, it's why we don't want to gloat. We don't want to celebrate in such a way that we forget that many people are grieving over that which we celebrate. All right, that I think is really, really important because I guess to me, I, I, I look at this and I go, I go back to Titus chapter three, where there's this idea of, you know, before we knew Jesus, we are engaged in the same wranglings of the world, right? It was all about push and pull and leveraging things and the myth of redemptive violence and I can force my way to get my thing and I can hate you so I get my way and everything else. And he says, but then you were changed. Then you were changed by the grace of God and now you're motivated by mercy and by the Holy Spirit and you're in the world to bring reconciliation and you don't do stuff like that. You do stuff very differently. And, and therefore, when we start sounding like we're high-fiving and celebrating things that are are hurtful to the world around us, how are we going to show that we do business different, right? We, we want to show that we're doing business different. In fact, one of the verses that I saw a lot on social media last week that frankly grieved me was out of Proverbs chapter 21. It says, justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies the evildoer. Now, I agree with Proverbs 21, 15. That's a, that's a beautiful bit of wisdom. 
But when you're putting that on social media, the day of Roe versus Wade being overturned, what you're saying to all these people that we're trying to reach for Jesus is you're the evildoers. We just preserve justice and you're all a bunch of evildoers. Um, and, and, and so all the more they go, these Christians, they think we're evil. These Christians are taking away our way of life that we've had as a freedom for a long time. These Christians want to force prayer down our kids' throats in the classroom now. These Christians, you know, they, they love their guns. They love their, their guns a ton and now they're winning that too. And so they're going to be able to enforce these things with weapons if they want to because we know that the Christians are the gun owners in the country. That's the way they feel and think again. I'm not saying this is what is reality. I'm going back to getting ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're trying to reach. This is how we're being perceived right now, right? That's how we're being perceived. And then on top of it, we're not going to pay taxes with our institutions, but we're going to take taxes for our institutions because why not? We don't want to pay them, but we're happy to receive them, right? And so all of that makes these people go, wow, this is a Christian theocracy setting up in the United States now. Now we may go, no, no, it's not. It can't be. It's not true. I don't necessarily think that's true. I personally don't think that's the case, but I know where they're coming from because I've been hearing it on our side for a long time. The liberals are taking over. They're taking away our way of life. They're going to teach CRT our kids and they're going to brainwash them with this and they're going to subvert them with that and they're going to pull them away from their faith. And we've been running around talking about how the left is trying to co-opt us for a long time. So why wouldn't the left think Christians are trying to co-opt the culture to our cause as well? Of course they would think that. And once again, you and I, we get to, to be in the place of being the peacemakers, being those who invest into others and disrupt the stereotype and, again, reduce the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the, the anger that they may feel. That rests only with individuals meeting up with other individuals to do that. Because what I don't want to do is fight for a political cause. What I don't want at all is to see Christian nationalism in our culture. I think Christian nationalism will only destroy the gospel. I think Christian nationalism is the demonic doctrine of the kingdom of Christ. You know, I really do because it just relies on human might as opposed to grace. It relies on power as opposed to humility and servanthood. It's just not the stuff of Jesus, right? It's effective, efficient, it can get things done. It's not like Jesus, right? And we want to be like Jesus. And so this is where, again, we need to have all hands on deck to come alongside these people, to walk with them, to care with them. As we think about the implications of Roe being uh, removed from the equation, all the more we as Christians got to step up. There's going to be much more needy women uh, in our society that find themselves in very difficult circumstances. And as a friend of mine said on social media this week, it's our chance now to shine as Christians, to come alongside those women, to clothe them, to care for them, to feed them, to, to help supply them with the things that are necessary for their children to grow up in healthy and wholesome ways so that because they are brought into this world, it is not a grief that they're brought into this world. And here's why I say that. I was thinking about that passage earlier out of uh, Proverbs chapter 21, right? Justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies the evildoer, right? Solomon's a pretty wise guy, right? And he's pulling from his experience as he writes that, and the Holy Spirit's guiding him in that. Well, the same Solomon wrote this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, a man might have a hundred children and live to be very old, but if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to have been born dead. 
His birth would have been meaningless and he would have ended in darkness. He wouldn't have even had a name. He would have never seen the sun or known its existence, yet he would have had more peace than had he grown up to be an unhappy man. The same man that said, yes, justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies the evildoer, says, and in this life, sometimes it's better to never be born than to be born and grow up in a miserable world and never be happy. Solomon said that too. And you could take that a lot of ways, but here's the way I'm wanting to use that today. We've fought for a long time for what we see now. Christians have waited for this day. And now, by God's grace, we're going to see maybe a million, 500,000, whatever new people that this world wouldn't have seen this next year uh, that we didn't see this year, right? So we're going to have all those more people. And, and what we need to work hard to do is to not make it to where it would have been better they were never born because we're not trying to bring the aid, the support, the encouragement, and, and, and the need to the lives of these people, right? We need to be thinking kingdom with all of that. Because statistically, a lot of these children are going to be born into very rough environments where there can be a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect, a lot of drug use, a lot of sexual abuse, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff where Solomon would say it was just it would have been better they're never born, except we're kingdom-minded people and we can make that difference. We can do things. We can labor, work, focus to do things where we're coming in and being the aid. We can vote that direction. We can give that direction. We can mobilize in that direction. We can serve in that direction, right? 400,000 kids are in foster care, right? We talk about adopting kids. Let's adopt the ones in foster care. Let's go after that too. Like there's so many cool things we can do. And this is our moment to not just talk, not just want rules and regulations, but to bring kingdom aid and values to bear in real life ways. We need to be there for those yet to be born so that they can have a quality of life. We need to be there for those who are born and are waiting for families. And we need to be there for those who are freaking out right now that their world is crashing down. And we can come in and we can bring calm. We can bring care. We can empathize. Even if we disagree, we can hurt with them and for them. Even though we wish they might see the world as we see the world, we can still understand where they're coming from because we too have been there in a different way. We've been afraid of our world turning on us. We've been afraid of government working against our rights. And now the shoe's on the other foot and we should feel with them. Because I believe if we're coming alongside, we're making the investments from the unborn to the born to the foster child to everybody that is on the left of this and they're all concerned about all these new things that have come out in the last 10 days, all of that. If we're thinking about all those people and we're doing it through a kingdom grid, not a politician grid, not a political grid, not a conservative grid, a kingdom Jesus-centered grid. I believe love can conquer hate. I believe relationship can conquer this sense of division that we feel. And I believe we can be ambassadors and emissaries of peacemaking through meekness in such a way that it can actually touch the lives of people who are very hurt, very angry, and very defensive right now. That's what we get to do. That's what being peacemakers is all about. And that's what's so cool, right? That is what an everyday missionary does. And so I believe if we can absorb these principles and feel what they're feeling and from that come alongside and care for them in ways that are sincere across those boards, right? That we're not just trying to get a law of the land nailed onto a, a plaque somewhere so we can say, ah, did it, we changed the rule. Like that's, that's not what Jesus called us to do. Jesus called us to change lives, not rules, right? Not to just make things illegal, but to make things unthinkable, 
right? That's our real cause. And to do it not with force, but to do it with love. And the more we do that, the more we'll be effective everyday missionaries.